Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us for this episode, all the way from Las Vegas, is Mr. Joe Carducci. Hey, Joe. Hey, Barney. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining us at what must be an ungodly hour for you, mid-afternoon <laughs> for us. <laughs> We're grateful to you for getting up early. We'll be no talking problems. later about Paul Nelson and Black Flag, plus, of course, your extraordinary books, including 1990s Rock and the Pop Narcotic. But let's start, Joe, with your first formative musical memories growing up in Central California. Well, I was only born in Merced, California. I was uh, less than one when we moved back to Chicago, where my mom is from. But I was raised in Naperville, Illinois, which is a suburb. And uh, I would say television. You know, I, I remember the Kingston Trio performing Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, on television. And it's, if I was four in 1959, it was a very spooky performance of a very spooky song. They were standing, I think this was the WGN Barn Dance Saturday night show, and they were standing up in the rafters, hanging over the rafters. And I, I'm listening to the lyrics, and I'm thinking, their heads are going to fall off and hit the floor down below. <laughs> and I, I, it was riveting. So, you know, that's how I, you know, I didn't have older brothers and sisters, so I didn't uh, listen to the radio except for what my mother played, which was more like ballads, you know, uh, in the morning Crooners. on the radio. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. 50s Italian singers. My mom's German, but she married an Italian. She liked Italian style. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they were good at singing. They were good at, in a way, translating the black singing styles for white ethnic America, I think, is what you could call the Italian niche in the American songbook. Yes, the best crooners for sure. So when when did you realize that you were like a, a music fan? I mean, when did the, when did music get you? I mean, was it that Tom Dooley on TV, or was there another moment where you became a serious music fan as a kid? 
Probably uh, in Chicago, you had WLS and WCFL once the 60s really start. They were both top 40 stations. WLS played a little more black music. But what I remember is garage rock. I remember Hanky Panky and uh, Louie Louie and uh, what's the other one? <laughs> uh, what is the other one? <laughs> well, it, there are quite a few other ones, aren't there, in the, in the garage vein. But Louie Louie's the sort of granddaddy of them all, maybe. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's another uh, uh, song title, uh, Wooly Bully. Oh, Wooly yeah, Bully, yeah, Sam, yeah, the yeah, Sam. Yeah. Sam the Sham. Sam the Sham. To me, uh, someone would say on the playground, have you heard Sam the Sham? And And then I would start listening to the radio again and get back into it and you know, Dirty Water by the Standells and then the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. More of those bands were on television than you remember. And YouTube brings that home because to have that that go out, I guess having three network television with variety shows, it's a little bit like in England where you had John Peel on the radio once a week. You, d- you didn't have Top 40 in Europe generally. And here, that was free form almost, Top 40 and then FM radio. But television was a little bit more like you had the mass audience once a week for Ed Sullivan or these various shows, and that could make a record, make a band. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. My understanding is that in 1976, you moved to Los Angeles with the aim of becoming a screenwriter, but you had already written, I think, a couple of music pieces by that point, 75 maybe? Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't focused on music, but so the first piece I had published was about movies, and that was in an anarchist paper called The Match, which came out of Tucson. And uh, I didn't know those people, but it was a great, a great little paper. He was obviously an obsessive, you know, old printing technology. So he was really running it from, I think, lead typeset. So it was a, a beautiful looking paper. And it was more interesting. You I mean, you, if you would go to a, a, a newsstand, you might see something from the communists or something from the Trotskys, you know, and then the match caught my eye and um, it had an impact on me because I was reading Marxism and anarchism and uh, anarchism was more interesting to me. It, <laughs> it, uh, it accounted for the American West in a way that I think Marx and Engels said America is outside of history they didn't claim that we were going to follow the Marxist, uh, you know, historical uh, diagram as he saw it. Right. And, uh, you know, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> At a certain point, I don't know whether you gave up on the screenwriting dream, Joe, but but you end up in Portland working a record store. And from there, you end up founding systematic record distribution. So just tell us a little bit about the late 70s before we get get on to SST. 
the only person I knew was this guy named Archie who had a fanzine called Urock. He started that off of a radio show he was doing in Fresno. And it was basically about German psychedelia in the early 70s. Uh, and he was open to anything from Europe. I think he started with, he was into the British invasion uh, bands as a kid. I thought, geez, this guy's got his own uh, magazine. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I, I did write a couple of things for him. And he moved to Portland. So when I was a little tired of Los Angeles after a year, I was aware, but in Hollywood, I the only band I saw was Tangerine Dream. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> they did the soundtrack to Sorcerer, which was a big Hollywood opening. And the trailer played in the movie theater I worked in. So I would duck in and watch the uh, Sorcerer trailer, which was essentially the Tangerine Dream music video for the theme song. It's brilliant, uh, mm. short film. And uh, it's not like a movie trailer with dialogue. It's just a montage to the music. I didn't, I thought they were past their prime. Edgar Frost had a spotlight guitar solo, which is not what you came to see if you like Tangerine Dream. <laughs> uh, so you had a sense that that was over with. And I listened to K-Rock and uh, heard the Ramones. I heard Anarchy in the UK on an import radio show, which otherwise was, you know, probably prog rock in 76. And I bought the first issue of Slash while I was in Hollywood. But I moved up to Portland and Archie was working at Music Millennium doing mail order. I remember he still had the last Harthen Perubu Final Solution 45. He said, it's good. And I said, well, I don't need it. <laughs> so I still wasn't, you know, uh, tuned in. But I, I, there were these guys who had left Music Millennium to do an import-only store called Renaissance. And I liked hanging out, talking to Peter Handel there. And uh, I got to be their buyer of punk rock. And he lost his two partners you know, they just, the, the shop wasn't doing much, but one of them had run, gone to London and uh, wandered into Rough Trade when it was a reggae shop in, I don't know, probably 77, before they were releasing records and distributing. And that sounded great to Peter, so he went over there, and uh, that's when they had started distributing and he got to know jeff travis and richard scott and um he talked to them and got them interested in um the idea that we would consolidate their export shipping to various american shops and they would just refer people to us and because we were nobodies in portland basically that was a hippie to hippie reggae pot smoking deal <laughs> and uh and people in these big record stores in new york and la and chicago and even seattle they kind of resented being sent to portland you know but it worked out and you know they started with singles augustus pablo and uh metal urbane the french single and you know so it started extremely small and at that Peter had the relationship on the phone with Rough Trade, and I 
began writing to American bands who were self-releasing, or I saw the Danger House 45s at another shop in town. So I quickly ordered all of those. I mean, I, I thought Slash was the best thing to read and the Danger House label was the best label in the country at, at that late 70s period. What was it about that magazine, that scene and that sound that grabbed you? Well, I in January of 78, I think what's called the first punk rock concert happened in uh, Portland. So that's the first time I went to, you know, a local scenes show where five bands played. The all-girl band, the Neo Boys, uh, evolved out of a band called Formica and the Bitches. And so they were on the bill. And I don't remember who else was on the bill. But to see the music live and then to understand where these little 45s came from, something similar to de-glamorize the record business, uh, demystify it. That was a major step. And and, uh, I think you can see that whenever you're talking to a a band, they didn't know they could do their own record. And they they didn't know that you could just hire your own time in a recording studio. Because the industry kind of had an interest in mystifying all that. And so that kind of nuts and bolts. It's like uh, the scales falling from your eyes, you know, uh, (laughs) everyone into music at the same time, globally, practically. And at some point in 1980-81, you cross the path of Black Flag. You you meet them. I don't know whether you've seen them already at that point, but long story short, you suggest that you move back down to Los Angeles and essentially run SST Records or, or play some part in running SST Records. Is that broadly accurate? And And how do you remember those guys on first encountering them? Well, I first saw their ad in Slash, so I wrote for the a sample. I told them we're a distributor, and uh, and uh, they sent it up to us in Portland, but it was rerouted down to our new address, so it took a while to get the record. And it was out of print by the time I ordered it. They had played Portland, I think, the night before I was to fly to London myself to meet the rough trade guys. Okay. And that was in November 79. And then we moved to Berkeley. Peter wanted them to know who I was. I was writing the catalogs and, and putting the orders together for Peter uh, on the phone with rough trade. And then when we got to Berkeley, rough trade had some people there that were working for him. And that was Alan Sturdy was a white Jamaican guy and a real nice, tall, fit right in with the rough trade scene. And uh, Peter and Bale from Search and Destroy magazine, he was kind of someone helping rough trade land in San Francisco area. Mm. And there was another guy named Craig. And so we were we found the systematic space opened up. And then those guys would 
meet over there and we'd plot out where they were going to be. They were first had a warehouse in Berkeley as well. And we split our accounts. So Rough Trade started with half of the shops we had cultivated as our uh, outlets for distribution. And, um, you know, as things went on, the, the Rough Trade catalog was so British that it, it just wasn't going to happen for them in America. What happened for Systematic was, you know, Black Flag, the Adolescents, the Circle Jerks, the Avengers, DOA, Dead Kennedys, you name it. Mm. That was a new generation of kids coming into record stores, and they needed those records, and they bought them. They weren't just looking over Bauhaus and birthday party singles and uh, listening to them and kind of, is this still cool at this point or are we on to factory and uh, whatever, you know, the, the trends changed very quickly. And the biggest rough trade supplied records I remember were Joy Division and uh, Young Marble Giants. Okay. The Stiff Little Fingers were the first hit they had. But by the time the audience for what you call hardcore, the, the stiff little fingers were three years old and, and they weren't part of that, even though they were more of a rock band and that's where it went in America. So I thought SST was our most interesting supplier and I knew they needed help and I knew they were touring and no one else was touring. When when Perubu toured, they limited what what they could do by their demands for a guarantee. They were booked by a company connected to IRS records, I think. And uh, Black Flag would play anywhere. You know, if it was somebody's garage, they would just pass the hat. They weren't even selling merchandise at that point. They were just counting on. The kids would go find a record store or they would be mail order customers. So when I went down there, they they were really between addresses. And it was like they had an investment in what they were doing and they had stuff recorded of other bands. But um, only the Minutemen 7-inch and the Black Flag singles were out when I went down there. This is in September 81. How do you remember Spot, who's such a kind of legendary figure in the SST slash uh, Black Flag story? Sorry, I mean slash, I meant literally yeah. a slash sure. rather than slash <laughs> records. <laughs> I know. Uh, because the sound of those SST records. I mean I mean let me just I reviewed Damage, the the, the Black Flag album for NME, and I came to West Coast Punk, but specifically Southern California punk with, with obviously with kind of preconceptions because, you know, I mean, as you will know all too well, there was almost that, that kind of media conspiracy to say, well, how could, how could Californians make punk rock records, you know? And I was just blown away by damage. And I mean, I, I still am when I listen to it, it's just such a, such a powerful experience. So wh- what was the setup like and, and, and what was the kind of secret to, the spots sound the sound that he got for those incredible bands 
Well, he worked. He 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 recorded jazz first, so yes, I think he was looking for live performance capture. He was not thinking like you you know you'd go into a, a lot of studios and um, the house engineer was hoping to be Ted Templeton or uh, Jack Douglas or somebody who did you know big albums, yeah. uh, Van Halen, Aerosmith, whatever, whatever was reigning standards and. They couldn't help. Uh, they thought they were helping the bands by beefing up their sound. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and uh, you know, Spot said he was trying to mic, a, a, you know, a nuclear explosion with Black Flag and just standing back and, and capturing it. And um, I don't think it's I, I mean, I think his approach took over. You wanted invisible recording of rock and roll bands. If they're a rock and roll band, a lot of stuff on 4AD and Factory was more textural. So there was strumming and resonance uh, rather than four guys leaning into the rhythmic collision of instruments. A huge part of the SST phenomenon was the sort of the visual side of it, extraordinary art of Raymond Pettibon and and Naomi Peterson's photographs. So I just wanted to mention the the very moving, wonderful book you wrote, inspired by the disappearance really of Naomi Peterson. So can you talk just briefly about Pettibon and Naomi? You know, in in the documentary Decline of Western Civilization, there's a very brief shot. You almost need to pause it to catch sight of Spot, Pettibone, and Medea sitting on a couch next to the band. And this is in the church in Hermosa Beach. But that's the brain trust. The, the band and Medea was Greg Ginn's girlfriend and Raymond was Greg's brother. And, you know, I concur with Henry at the time, uh, one, after he was in his solo career, he was asked if he had any regrets. And I think maybe he's changed his mind a little bit. But at the time, he said, my only regret is I didn't get there earlier. And I think that's what he meant, is that time when Raymond was, you know, part of, he came with the band in, in, in ways that, that ceased to to be true although he was around while I was there and just a brilliant guy I mean I think he graduated UCLA at 19 and I bet by the time he was 22 he'd read everything high or low in the English language (laughs) (laughs) I mean uh, uh, that house because the house was their you know their father's house really and he was a compulsive buyer of flea market books, high, high literature, low literature. Yeah, just that, you know. But, but nothing middle, bro. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote spy novels and uh, got a, one published at least, but I don't know really. He was an Anglophile. He met 
Mrs. Ginn in London during the war, and she was an Estonian uh, refugee. Regis Ginn was an Irish Catholic who uh, was in the Air Force. And um, I think Raymond's gone back to uh, Estonia, and he's a proud son of Estonia <laughs> and uh, in the art world over there. Naomi's story is is a little bit later, but when I joined SST, it's basically Black Flag. We're putting out the Minutemen and Saccharin Trust and the Stains and the Meat Puppets and uh, St. Vitus. But there's a point at which the photographers Black Flag counted on. Glenn Friedman has his book coming out of just Black Flag photos okay. in a month or so. I couldn't get him to shoot Saccharin Trust, say, or St. Vitus. So... We're on the lookout, and really, this girl cuts her wrists and and calls SST in the middle of the night, and I'm asleep, you know, on my mattress when Chuck lets her in and takes her to the washroom and washes up her arms, and then and then uh, uh, puts her to bed, and um, I meet her in the in the morning. She's got bandaged wrists, and um, Chuck says Naomi has a camera, <laughs> and uh, and. <laughs> Whatever her crisis the night before, which was basically her father wouldn't let her back in the house, seemed out of her mind. And we went to work then, and she shot St. Vitus that week and Saccharin Trust right thereafter. And um, you still see those images from that week. And that was, um, I think that was July 82. It was a little bit difficult because we... She couldn't make every gig because of she worked restaurants. We couldn't put her on a salary at that point. We just mostly paid for her supplies. But she loved musicians, loved the bands. She was a little tired of L.A., so she was always dreaming of going to Germany or D.C. And eventually she you know, went to both and lived and ultimately died in D.C. at 38. But she was out of the out of the grind by then. I I I, I guess she didn't want to grow old. Is maybe one summary conclusion. But I should say that Black Flag, Mugger, Spot, Pettibone. You know, listen to it, look at it, and you think, what kind of girl was attracted to this music and this art <laughs> and these photos? And it, it was it was not Led Zeppelin at the Hyatt House, you know. <laughs> so these were radical Los Angeles girls, and there's some kind of um, uh, feral energy to kids who grow up in Los Angeles. It has to do with no winter, skateboarding, surfing, outdoors. You're outdoors all your life. You see fairly young people, and they're very weathered skin because they've just been outdoors their whole life. It's harsh on family life. It's harsh on people, but it's a dream. I mean, and, and if you're acclimated to it, you know you're talking to a Southern Californian. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you um, are talking to anybody, it, they're very positive. Whatever you say to them, they say, right on. <laughs> and, even even and, now, even these days, yeah. yes, <laughs> yeah. You don't get any negative vibes uh, unless you're really in trouble. 
(laughs) (laughs) I thought it would be a good moment to hear the week's new audio interview, which Mark is going to tell us about. Yeah, it's uh, Andy Gill's interview with Henry Rollins, June 94, or May or June 94. Starts off by talking about Kurt Cobain's very recent death. And via that, he talks about Black Flag's influence on that generation of bands. Jasper, let's have a listen to the first clip. That's about this. My name's Henry, and you're here with me now. It's been said to me, that's been said to me by music critics, by some of the bands that have come up to me and said, hey man, you know, I... I saw you and maybe started wanting to play. I've heard this from like pretty big bands. And uh, I read an interview with Kurt Cobain. He said, they said, what made you start playing music? He goes, seeing Black Flag in 1984. Who knows, you know, who knows what made him start. But So yeah, I have heard that here and there. And okay, well, if it's true, then it's true. doesn't really amount to much <laughs> I, I just want to interject this extraordinary memory i have that i sometimes wonder if it was even true but i i, I was in la in 1993 and i was walking along sunset i mean i was somewhere on the sunset strip and i suddenly found myself outside this sst record store <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah, you'll probably remember this, Joe. I don't yeah. know if you ever went in there. I did. But it was very <laughs> it's the last thing I expected to find on the Sunset Strip. And I went in, and who was behind the counter but Pat Smear, formerly of the Germs. And he was very sweet and friendly, as 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 I think he is, right? And uh, and we, we got chatting. I think I told him that I'd written a piece about Black Flag sort of 10 years before. And he said, Kurt Cobain called me last week and asked me to come on the road with Nirvana. You know, I couldn't help remembering that when I listened to to, to that clip that, that Mark just played. So, yeah, it is, it's a very interesting to, to thing to think about, the, the impact the Black Flag had on the subsequent sort of half-generation or generation. Mark, back to you. Yeah, yeah, sure. He, some length expresses his disapproval of slackers which is entire which is entirely unsurprising coming from henry rollins <laughs> um, <laughs> um he talks about how he spends his time he's he leads he has a fairly ascetic lifestyle and is as a kind of sort of says himself as something of a workaholic he talks about his highly disciplinarian father who's an army guy basically that his his father's a pretty scary piece of work and then he can but basically says you know and i realize how much i've inherited from him <laughs> uh he talks about you know this general conversation about things like violence in america guns and so on and so forth he's hilarious about what he likes and hates about england i mean the, the, the things he likes are english audiences he said, you know wishes he could take them with him from one show to the next but uh his, his idea of hell has been trapped on a ferry with English football fans, which we all sympathise with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair enough. <laughs> he's very astute about all the stuff that he talks about, like, you know, violence and crime. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he's talking about how one should stop trying to crack down on crime when it happens, but instead try and treat it at the source, which is to say that you should, you know, encourage people to have good home yeah, lives yeah. And, and, and kind of and basically 
stop people from even wanting to do crime in the first place which is you know he's he's spot on and, and in some ways ahead of yeah, his time yeah. on all of that because yeah, yeah. that's a that's a current topic of conversation now. no absolutely yeah, i mean th- there is extensive conversation about child rearing in this and, and, and how that yeah. relates um, henry rollins on child rearing <laughs> well, he, does say, he does it's say he wouldn't he wouldn't want one himself <laughs> but, but he's, he's you know he understands why he doesn't want one which is quite funny really. he, he also expresses so, to some great length, his affection for Ted Nugent. Uh, we'll play a clip at the end of this, this podcast where he talks, talks about that. Um, he talks about the difference between Black Flag and the Rollins Band. Let's have a listen to this clip here. Black Flag was a a band that was really, uh, in a way, a product of the scene it was in, in that it, it, we were very much part of the 80s, part of that big Southern Californian movement of ag- aggressive bands. Yet still at the same time fiercely individual. I mean, we didn't really associate with any of these bands. We didn't like, you know, go on tour with these punk rock bands and didn't really listen to punk rock. But the Black Flag thing was a very, almost a tribal mentality where you know we, you lived together, you starved together, you slept in the same little hovel together. There's no real money to speak of, and everyone just kind of like, you know, you just kind of hated life together. <laughs> and the Rollins Band is, uh, you know, uh, there's a salary for everybody, and uh, the, the living conditions are a lot better. And it's more of a democracy where Black Flag was Greg Ginn's band. It's hard to feel. Joe, does that bring back memories of Henry? Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't know Henry really well, but, you know, in our group, if you were in the group, SST and Black Flag, Global, (laughs) you know, you didn't need to know. You knew that about them and you trusted them and you were, you knew what they were doing on the road. They knew what you were doing, you know, in the studio, in the, in the uh, record company, in the booking agency. There were layers of this tribal thing that he talks about. He talks about music against, as opposed to spoken word, because by this time he's got into doing the spoken word gigs. And he says, you know, they're, they're quite different beasts. Um, who he is on stage is a completely different animal when doing spoken word. He talks about the writers that have influenced him, Henry Miller, Hubert Selby Jr., Nelson Algren. He talks about reading Nietzsche in quite some detail. Um, he, he, it was a delightful bit. He talks about discovering his mother's record collection, and he had grown up with this record collection and not really listened to it, not liked what he was hearing. And years later, going through it and finding John Coltrane and Miles Davis and all this sort of stuff, and realising his mother was actually really hip, and, and she had been going to see John Coltrane and, and so on and so forth back in the day to his father's disapproval. Um, his father really didn't like this sort of stuff. Uh, he, he also talks about, you know, we were talking about earlier about Top 40 ra- AM radio, and he talks about his love of soul music, which really surprised me, because you do not get any sort of inclination that he'd like soul music from his own 
musical output. And he talks lovingly about Gladys Knight and the Pip and Parliament Funkadelic and so on and so forth, which I think is pretty terrific. But he says that when he started buying records, he really got into buying white hard rock, hence the Ted Nugent affection and much. You know, Aerosmith and so on and so forth in the 70s. But then being knocked out by the Sex Pistols and hearing Bad Brains, that they were a local to him. He grew up in DC and Bad Brains were a local band and, you know, being knocked out by that sort of stuff. He talks about his gym work, <laughs> which he, he really has to, uh, <laughs> and with great affection about his fans. I really like this interview. I, 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 liked, I liked him a lot more than I thought I was going to listen to. Well, I, I, you'd be hard-pressed, I think, at this point to talk to somebody or find somebody who knows more about music. Right. He didn't see Coltrane. You know, neither did Mike Watt, but no, they're no. both they're both uh, obsessive about it. I don't. Yeah. I myself don't. I prefer the ballad format, so I have a hard time. I think there's more music you can respond to live than you can on record. It, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, jazz is mm. is something anyone would respond to in the room that the players are playing, but. To put a record on to me, it, it doesn't affect me much. One, I, I have a few records, Miles Electric records mostly that sure. that I like. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good driving music for LA. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, one of the things I, I found really interesting when he talks about his parents. I mean, basically, he'd spend well, his parents separated obviously when he was very young. And he would spend five days at his mum's and then the weekends at his father's. And they are two such different people. His mother's essentially a bohemian. She's into art. She's into jazz. And his dad is this military strict disciplinarian. And he's kind of got both in his bloodstream and both of those, the, the gene code from both sides of his, his, his family are present in him. And he's very aware of that. So it's, it's no, I... Yeah, I, I really I enjoyed this interview very much. He was much funnier than I thought oh, he yeah. was going to be. He's funny. Yeah. Well, that was uh, you know I di- I didn't know I I think Black Flag knew he was funny. Him and Ian together, you right. know uh, Naomi in one of her letters, uh, you know she saw them together as different as they are. They're uh, you know uh, they're a comedy routine. Uh, I gather. Right. <laughs> so anyway, that's like I said, we'll play the, the Ted Nugent clip at the end of the show. But I, it's it's a it's a it's a really good audio. This really worth listening to. Anyone who's got even the remotest interest. Yeah, in I found stuff. it very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks, Mark. That's tremendous. Um, Henry, of course, reissued Rock on the Pop Narcotic in 1984 on his own. Uh, Two thirteen. Nineteen eighty four. Ninety four. I get these decades very very mixed <laughs> up. 1894, I think it was, <laughs> on his 213.61, which was his birthday imprint. And I don't think it, it, it didn't change very much in those four years, did it? I mean, you didn't revise it heavily for that edition? Yeah, I did. Um, oh, you did? He, okay. He would have just reprinted it. But I thought after Nirvana, you know, changed the game, really put the media on its uh, back heel, which is where you want them. I thought I should update it. For any listeners unfamiliar with it, where do I start? It's an enormous book. It's an, a, a fantastic rant. It's what else is it? I mean, it's 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 an extraordinary 
read, not without its controversial elements, Joe, as I'm sure you know. But how did just tell us how this grew in your mind to the to the point where you finished the book? What was the seed of it, and did it just sort of explode from there? Well, I think it was you know the what I learned at SST which was, you know, a, an emphasis on live music playing and a players-centered focus. And that changes how you think back through Elvis Presley or, you know, the Beatles. In a way, the most radical thing the Beatles introduced was that it was not John Lennon and his Beatles because the name was... You know, Buddy Holly didn't stick with the crickets. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the, there's some singles that are released as the crickets. Now, that is a revolutionary act because you're asking an audience, you know, it's not like a, this is not music that is a vocal group. Then then it makes sense to call them the flamingos or the Orioles. Sure. But when you're dealing with a rock and roll band and you insist that it's a band by calling it the Beatles, you're forcing teeny boppers to learn the drummer's name, the bass player's name, the guitarist's name, and the, and the singer's name. And that is a musical milestone in popular music because, you know, the previous audiences wanted to moon over the singer. And so in a way, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones launched this idea that the band is what is important. Right. And the Led Zeppelin mystique builds on that, even though in concert it's Robert Plant's in your face. But the record is sold as something more important than his codpiece, you know, or... <laughs> Surely nothing more important than Planty's Godpiece. <laughs> no, but and you're anyway, right. we yeah. were we were enthralled to that idea of the band, and I don't think I had seen that in rock literature. So, you know, if I was driven, it was to be the voice of what we had discerned and developed in in and around basically in and around Black Flag. But, you you know, it goes back to Greg saw King Crimson in 74 at the Roxy. And I remember him telling me, he said, he sort of liked Lark's Tongues. And they come out on stage and they're all in white. And he can tell they're not like a rock band. They're not like Ted Nugent and the Amboy <laughs> Dukes. He, go, he said his his first thought was, oh, these guys are fascist, and their presentation was, you know, uh, military, I guess, you know. So certainly Henry brought some of that to Black Flag, <laughs> uh, you know. And Greg already had some kind of uh, undeflectable drive of his own. And when you, had, when you were around Greg Ginn, once you had decided this guy is a genius, then – you know, you had quibbles, but you didn't have doubts. You didn't think this is going nowhere. I got a six pack, and I don't need you. Joe, it might amuse you, given the very long 
central chapter of rock and the pop narcotic, which is entitled Narco Rockritocracy. And we'll talk about that in just a sec. <laughs> that yeah. I remember going to see The Descendants with Greil Marcus, of all people, in Berkeley and enjoying it enormously. It was a tiny little room somewhere. There must have been 55 people in the room, if that, you know. And Greel and I, obviously being music writers, standing at the very back of a certain kind of distance, but enjoying it enormously. And I think, I can't remember if Milo Goes to College had come out already at that point. I think it must have done. Otherwise, I probably, I don't know whether Greel said, come and see this band with me or what, but I, I love The Descendants. I've still, I've still got that copy that I might even have. Anyway, here it is. It is. It's a bit of yeah. a classic record. Yeah. This, and we're featuring your lovely piece about Frank Novetta and the Descendants yeah. from yeah. Life Against D- Dementia. But just to just to get into that chapter, which is a, an absolute kind of laying waste to, shall we broadly describe as the the sort of left liberal Rolling Stone rock media establishment, the Dave Marshes of this world. And all this time later, I, I suppose I would ask you, do, do you stand by every word of that today? Or do you look at it slightly, with it in a slightly different perspective or what? I'd be fascinated to know. Well, I don't, I don't stop thinking. You know, thinking is uh, liquid. And uh, adopting ideas, in, in my metaphor, is not thinking. You adopt an idea so an idea is an inert rock that you can throw at someone in an argument. So my ideas change. One of the things interesting for me is your love of the sort of small band rock format really shines through in the book. And clearly you've maintained that love today in talking to you today. But in the book, a lot of it is defined like in the negative via criticism of, you know, basically everybody and anybody. Like you write that, quote, Prince has tried to assume the persona of a Bob Dylan or a Miles Davis, that of a deep, rule-breaking genius recluse. But his music is, at best, on the cutting edge of recording production and arrangement technology. Like, I guess for me, it's like, were you being contrarian or do you still believe that genuinely about like, someone like Prince? You know, I we heard certain Stax singles on WLS as kids in Chicago. Uh, Sam and Dave had one big hit, crossover hit after another, and Wilson Pickett and stuff like that. And and I think Prince doesn't, he doesn't have that sinewy rhythmic sense that I take to be part of R&B. Now, of course, other people are doing electronic drums in R&B by that time. And I think Prince is a better singer than Rick James, but I like Rick James's singles. You know, <laughs> to me, they're better pop singles. If you, you know, you know, especially when he was not the singer, Rick James. I, I, I mean, he's a great character, but he he just he didn't have a a great voice. I don't think. So it's not like the Mary Jane girls and uh, Tina Marie and people like that. Yeah, Eddie Eddie Murphy. You know, I mean, it was like, oh, this is Rick James with Eddie Murphy singing. Because, you know, he had a style in the studio that was almost like a perfect cross between craft work and R&B. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was machine made, but it was fun.
The next topic is Paul Nelson. You wrote this wonderful piece about the late Paul Nelson that we're featuring on RBP. And you make the, the quite bold claim that actually the, the, the birth of rock criticism, quote unquote, isn't Crawdaddy or Mojo Navigator, but really it is the Little Sandy Review that Paul Nelson co-founded with, is it John Pancake? That's the name, isn't it? John yeah. Pancake, his, his roommate at the University of Minnesota. Issue one comes out in 1959, and I think there are then 30 issues over the course of, of several years. And you tell Paul's story, as did Kevin Avery in the book, Everything is an Afterthought. I'm fascinated by Paul Nelson. I mean, I wish we could get his stuff on Rock's Back Page. I think he was one of the great music writers, but a, but a real sort of kind of contrarian, quite fish out of water sort of character, wasn't he? I mean, did you know, I think David Lightbourne introduced you to his work, really. I mean, did, did you know, had you, given you were talking about um, Rolling Stone and the kind of rock crit establishment. Was Paul Nelson a name that meant anything to you when you were reading, you know, Lester Bangs and Metal Mike Saunders? No. Okay. No, I read his Rolling Stone review of of the Ramones' first album, I believe it was, but I was not familiar with his name until David brought it to my attention. I didn't read until Kevin's book and, and anthology I didn't read his long pieces, which he was famous for. Yeah. And I did read Circus once in a while, but that was all unsigned. Uh, Paul characterizes that as he would be even writing the letters to the editor, you know, in Circus magazine. So it was a all- sign from Dick Diver out of uh, Tender <laughs> yeah. is the Night. <laughs> sort of, uh, yeah, just joking around. I mean, that's where... I say you you can trace it back to photoplay and the Roaring Twenties, but in in terms of rock criticism, the voice starts in Little Sandy Review. That kind of this isn't classical music we're dealing with. There's some element of this that is kind of humorous, trying to criticize this kind of folk music, simple uh, rock and roll folk music, blues. Irish traditional, they did a lot of stuff and their mentality was what it's been ever since is what a great way to get free records. It's unbelievable. They'll come (laughs) in the mail. Yeah. Uh, That's a dream for, you know, a lot of people. And the story of course, is that in one of the Dylan books, I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but Dylan goes round to, you know, Dylan, who no one has heard of at that point, goes round to Paul's room and borrows records from him, like blues records and stuff. So, you know, I think there's a strong likelihood that Paul Nelson played a, a really major role in kind of educating the young Bobby Zimmerman, as he was then. When Mark and I first, when we just started Rock's Back Pages, we went to America to meet with writers. And we went to the Evergreen Video Store, you mentioned at the end of the piece, and chatted with Paul, who seemed, even on that very, very slight acquaintance, a very otherworldly, sort of detached, remote figure. Do you you have any memories of meeting Paul when we went in that store? Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) He had a beret, of course. He was wearing a beret. He looked very ghostly and weird. I mean, what do you remember? 
You know, I mean, just white, ashen-faced ashen man. Ashen white face. And he sort of yeah. spoke to us while looking over our shoulders at the door of the store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, we didn't we didn't get around to going back to sort of collar him, uh, which I, I, I really regret. Yeah, but... me too. I mean, he had said, look, come back and talk about it another time, you know, and you know, come come back tomorrow or next week or something. And we, we I think we ended up, just running out of time didn't yeah we? quite quite possibly um, yeah you know but i've been fairly fascinated by him ever since and the, the those long pieces about you know particularly like warren zevon and then of course we have to mention the fact that he signed the new york dolls to mercury records you know and you mentioned that long piece that paul wrote about his experiences with the dolls and mercury yeah i mean it's he's just fascinating enigmatic Character. Well, I, yeah, I, we didn't spend enough time with him either. He came up to where we were staying, our friend uh, Jane Stokes' house, which happened to be, you know, on Fifth Avenue overlooking the park. It was beautiful. And, and Paul came up there and David was taping an interview and talking about the Little Sandy Review and Bob Dylan. And his mind was on Western's and uh, detective literature. And I could talk Westerns because I was working on my book. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, but I listened to them talk and, and I've listened to the tape since. And, and my Paul Nelson piece, it starts with part of that interview David uh, taped with Paul talking about the Dylan Electric at the Folk Festival. But Paul, the mystery for me was, was there a Western screenplay? And when Kevin Avery said, no, there really wasn't anything as discreet as a screenplay, then you see him as a tragic figure, as a writer, because that's what he wanted to write, and he failed. Mm. And that's what was haunting him. If you saw him as a sort of distant, I wouldn't say haunted until I found out that. There's no Western for me to read that he wrote. And he was writing that for years, for decades. I don't know what that means because I I have plenty to write about and I don't pause, you know. And the problem is rewriting forever, you know, and, and getting it in shape. So that's what he reminded me. I named it after a Cornell Woolrich short story. First you dream, then you die. Well, listen, thank you so much for talking to us about about all of that. It's been really, really interesting listening to you. And we just need to note the passing of, well, a couple of people really, but first off, Timmy Thomas died earlier this week, most famous for Why Can't We Live Together? So we're running an interview that Richard Williams of Melody Maker did in early 1973. I think it was a... Was a hit in America in 1972, wasn't it? I don't know. Was it anyway? It's an extraordinary. That was, a great, un- that was yeah. a great top 40 crossover hit. When that came on the radio, you really stopped what you were doing and listening. It's the weirdest yeah. sounding record you can possibly ever hear. The interesting thing about Timmy Thomas is that his basically his stick was the sort of thing you'd get in hotels in those days in America. A guy playing an organ with a drum machine. Mm. You know, it, it was a thing. And, and that's yeah. what he was doing. He didn't play a hand. Yeah. I think he, he played Lowry or something like that. And so basically the, the, the album that that single comes from 
all sounds like that. It's not a great album, you know, to be honest. The single is absolutely fabulous. But, but that record is so it's good. So, it's so unique oh, sounding. Man. It's just something else. Yeah. Richard says, it's one of those, this is written, you know, just, just after it's been a hit. It's one of those rare records destined to turn up on golden oldie collections in 20 years' time. That's pretty accurate. That's very accurate. You still hear it. You hear it all the time, don't you? If you've heard it, which is perhaps unlikely, because the pernicious panel which vets records for the BBC's daytime strip shows, strip shows, has turned it down. You'll know it's based around simple stabbing, organ chords, and extraordinary Latin percussion with a warm, soulful vocal on top. What you might not know is the record is entirely the achievement of one man, Thomas, and that it took 15 minutes to record. Down at the... (laughs) (laughs) down at the Glades Record Studios in Miami, Florida. Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why Mm, Why can't we live together? Tell me why, tell me why Another thing that Timmy mentions in the interview is that he played keyboard on a lot of those gold wax records in Memphis. He was part of kind of yeah. Quincy. So I think he may have played on like James Carr records. Wow. Spencer wow. Wiggins records. So yeah, that yeah. was interesting to me. I'd forgotten that. And then, of course, he hooks up with Henry Stone. We're also saying goodbye to one of our flock, really, aren't we, Mark? We're saying goodbye yes. to, 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 to Gavin Martin, who died very, very sadly last week. He's been a writer on Rock's Back Pages for many years. He was an enemy staffer when I started writing for enemy in 1981 and just beloved of, well, the whole community, really. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had really you know, quite a few dealings with him back when he was still living in London. He subsequently moved to St. Leonard's to the, the, the exodus to the coast that so many people are doing. Uh, and he was great. I mean, really argumentative man. You know, um, he could pick a fight with just about anyone about just about anything and <laughs> frequently did. But everyone loved him, you know, as, as argumentative as he was, that, that everyone was enormously fond of him. Marvellous writer. He had the, the, the rare thing of holding down some pretty long-standing gigs. He was the Daily Mirror's pop writer for years and years and years. But a lot of people remember him from his day from from Belfast and his fanzine alternative Ulster. His Belfast brogue never really left him. Never left him. Govern Martin. Govern Martin. Martin. (laughs) I mean, it was sometimes quite difficult to penetrate that (laughs) brogue. But he, he he started this this fanzine in 1977 when he was like like 12 years old practically <laughs> called Alternative Ulster, which you mentioned Stiff Little Fingers earlier, Joe. Um, they mm. pretty basically named that that fantastic song after Gavin's fanzine, and then he moved to to he started he started uh, stringing for for the enemy from Belfast. So the first pieces about Stiff Little Fingers and the undertones and yeah. so forth was all, was all Gavin, and then moves to London and um, ends up on the staff of the enemy. And yeah, I mean, you know, for anyone who didn't know, he he knew he was living on borrowed time. Yeah. Um, he had a congenital heart condition and. He certainly made the most of his last sort of couple of years and was actually in Barbados having just swum in the Caribbean when he suffered a fatal heart attack. So, you know, as upset as we all are at losing him, it, it's some consolation that that was, that was how he, yes. he ended yes. up going. Yeah. So we're, we're saying a, a very fond farewell to, to the great Gavin Martin.
Mark, do you want to pick a few of the pieces that have yeah. interested and amused you the most in the last couple of weeks? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, a few things here. Uh, last week, Ed McCormack did a big feature on Bette Midler for Rolling Stone. And it's got this extraordinary paragraph. I mean, remember, this? you've got to think this, this is written three, four years after Stonewall. And it's kind of, you know, it's pretty close to homophobic. Because the first time I saw Bette Midler perform was that chaotic evening she spoke of at the Continental Bars. The hunkering, buggering man-meat herds were packed into the subterranean lounge like cattle in a boxcar, waiting for Bette Midler to make her triumphant return to the tubs. The uh, tops. I can safely say you couldn't write a paragraph like that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. Uh, uh, jumping forward to 1992, Andy Gill sees Nirvana at Reading Festival. And it's kind of quite nice because it's just such a different take on Nirvana from everyone else's. He says, so you stand there choking, feet soaked and aching, well and truly softened up for the rumoured last ever appearance of Nirvana. Strange to see whether that tiny figure a quarter of a mile away is really Kurt Cobain or just another roadie. Eventually, it is Kurt Cobain in a three-quarter length white coat, and you wish it wasn't. Nirvana opened their set with one of several songs that featured the refrain, I don't care, possibly breed, though it's hard to tell. This most astoundingly popular of trios, having notched up somewhere in the region of 15 million album sales with the least expansive of musical lexicons. So uh, I, I, I think it's just quite a nice kind of counterbalance to the sort of the the the, the, the praise that's just always poured poured on them. This week, a couple of interesting things. Pete Johnson reviews Stone's Satanic Majesty Request for the LA Times in '67. It is an interesting album, very good in parts, but sometimes flawed by excesses of gimmickry, which I think is actually a pretty <laughs> fair take. Country to Joe McDonald, interviewed by Richard Goldstein, Village Voice, '68. He says, there isn't going to be any revolution. Let's be realistic. And he says, if the revolution ever comes for real, they'll probably use Andy Warhol munitions. You throw it up and this big sign comes on. Pow! Yeah, I think you quote from this interview in Rock and the Pop Narcotic. <laughs> I might. You, uh, I had a couple of... Uh, very approving, gold, mind you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot in, in the early years. Uh, I mean, Goldstein is an yeah. early important writer who Absolutely, was yeah. who was hip to what was happening or starting to happen, and so you don't know what you're going to find in his anthologies. They're worth looking at. I, I know, absolutely. I mean, get, getting permission to run his stuff has been a huge pleasure for us. He's so interesting. Uh, he says things like, "If you're going to get into a heavy acid trip, you're going to get religious. If you stop taking acid, you stop being religious." <laughs> Which I don't, Very good. I, just really, really I mean, like. he's quite. What I remember from your quoting of it, Joe, is that you're you're approving of the fact that Joe McDonald's being pretty cynical about the the, the hippie revolution that he's partly responsible for. So he's, he's, he's kind of, um, yeah, no, he's, I, I love that. I love that about that. Also, this week, Sandy Robertson from Record Mirror. I, I mean, Sandy Robertson's largely a sounds writer, but he did write some stuff from Record Mirror, seeing the. Sex Pistols and the Slits at the screen on the green in Islington and London. It says, um, at closing time, basically that they were all shoved down to the pub and then told to come back and sort of come in through the back door. It's a sort of semi-secret gig. At closing time, a crowd began to form, but the back door was soon opened and amid much surging, I managed to grab a seat in the second row. After this, we were treated, question mark, to the Slits. This is only their third gig, and by ordinary standards, they were awful, but I liked them. They were already semi-legendary before they ever played, mainly due to a News of the World expose on new wave all-girl groups. 
and they enhanced the legend by having every song sound the same. It's an old cliche, but they really were so bad that they were good. (laughs) (laughs) He says, at last the pistols, they stride on purposefully and blast into God Save the Queen, which has already been played in its unreleased single form over the PA. Just so we get the message. And you have to hand them, these guys have a knack for killer singles, which is absolutely true. I think that'll pretty do from me. Uh, Jasper, have you got anything... Just a couple of things to mention. First of which is Lisa Verico interviews Tortoise in the Times in February 2004. I did pick this one out thinking, I know Mark likes Tortoise. (laughs) And I actually read an interview with you, Joe, in which you kind of murmured some vaguely approving things about Tortoise. So I thought I'd mention them. They're actually very funny in the interview. What would put me off, says Doug McCombs, is how seriously people seem to take us. We're forever being called musical scientists. But we're not the intellectuals we're made out to be. And while we do like our music to work on different levels, it's not brain food. The other day, one of the band told a journalist a scientist had recently discovered a new note on the musical scale and that we'd used it a lot on our new album. The guy didn't even laugh. (laughs) (laughs) And they kind of lament the fact they really want to be doing film soundtracks, but nobody's kind of contacted them to to ask them to do it. And they think, well, maybe we need to get a publicist to try to push that. But they are in demand for music for adverts, although most requests are turned down. We did a Calvin Klein ad a while ago, says Bitney. We needed the money, and we could have done with free underwear, although that never arrived. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a funny short interview. I really enjoyed it. I knew Doug when he was in 11th Dream Day, and um, he was a real real nice guy. And I saw, I was back in Chicago, and they were playing small clubs, Mm -hmm. and you could really, they had a really nice uh, twin guitar uh, approach, uh, Baird and Rick on guitars. And then, um, yeah, I was surprised. It seemed that Tortoise, you know, took over. I wouldn't have guessed that of a Chicago band or of any band at that time. I was surprised by them. Yeah. They have a really nice sound, a kind of prefiguring a kind of like jazz-inflected instrumental rock kind of thing, like Portico Quartet and that kind of thing. They kind of I think the, paved the way the, for it. the German psychedelia was reissued in that period, and it, mm. that stuff harmonia and uh noi that, noi very that, much that yeah, had a, a, a big effect in chicago i think um oh, you, right. you, yeah. kids hadn't heard it in the 70s second piece I wanted to mention is No Checked Tablecloths, Rockfort and the Meaning of Frenchness in Pop. That's Rockfort. That's the David McKenna's column about French music in the Quietus. And he just he's very he's very funny about this. When I was in Paris in 2002, I fell for a new, new wave, for there have been others, of chanson artists like Benjamin Biolay and Karen Anne. At the time, I was charmed. It was the perfect compliment to my French dream. How perfect that the French had again started making music that sounded like the classic 60s pop of yore. All my Francophile fantasies fulfilled. <laughs> but um, he kind of he, he then came to realize that in the face of the insipidness and the pastiche quality of a lot of the actual music and the sense of it being overconscious of its own Frenchness, that it was kind of like Frenchness as in the Britishness of Britpop, so that it was kind of thin and feeble and reflexive and reactive. And uh, there's just a good piece reflecting on 
French pop from an outside perspective, but with a deep understanding of of the history of it. And I just it's again, you know, about how it fetishizes kitschy aspects of the sixties and seventies, like Yeah Yeah and Girl Singers and and Bardot and Gainsbourg and you know all these people. A good article if you're interested in French pop, which I just thought I'd mention. <laughs> Brilliant. That's your lot. That's my lot. I, I'm not going to quote from these, but I'll just mention them. Three pieces that I enjoyed adding. One was Michael Simmons's retrospective piece on Lowell George, who most of us revere, from 2010 in Mojo. I mean, I know a fair amount about Lowell George, but there were nice quotes that Michael had managed to get from people who adored Lowell, like Linda Ronstadt and Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown. So there was there was a more kind of personal detail than in your average Little Feet retrospective. Mm-hmm. The next piece is... Stephen K. Peoples on Boyd Elder, who is the extraordinary Texan artist who did like the Eagles album covers and so forth. And he was uh, a self-proclaimed art law <laughs> who lived in the middle, a bit like you live in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. <laughs> he lived in the absolute middle of nowhere in Texas and was this kind of desert mystic renegade character i don't know if you ever encountered boyd elder but fascinating character died three three four years ago the last is a piece by nicholas jennings of the uh, toronto globe and mail which is a, a tribute to jack scott the canadian rock and roller who i mean the piece is called canada's forgotten rock and roll star which is pretty accurate this is a guy who deserves to be remembered and maybe partly because he was canadian but he was uh you know he was a he was a tough he was a tough rocker i don't know if you ever whether you were a fan of jack scott oh yeah he was italian uh, yes, Scafone. he was exactly. Jack Scott was not his not his real name. Yeah, is he still alive? No, Scott? he 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 died. I think this piece is it, it is it is effectively an obituary from 2019. So he, he died then. Yeah, those are great. In a way, they're minimal, like Timmy Thomas's hit. His hits yeah. could be very minimal. Yes, Jack Scott. Yes, yes. Well, we only had a couple of pieces on Jack, and so I'm really, really pleased to add the excellent Nicholas Jennings. Who's, we got a lot of great Canadian stuff from from Nicholas, so he's he's a great person to have on RBP. Well, look, I think we're out of time, and it just remains for me to thank you for us to thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Joe. Um, I, I I found it really interesting. Yeah, thanks, uh, Barney, Mark, Jasper. It's, great, it's been great to have you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, so your books are all available. We will put links into the show notes for the episode, Joe. But to suffice to say, there are four or five books, including your most recent Western stories, which are available even on Amazon. Um, <laughs> yeah, go check. And your blog, The New Vulgate, where you can read many of your, your pieces that you've written over the last you know, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. So, Mark, we've just got one... One, yeah, one it's gonna be audio. it's gonna be Henry Rollins on his sort of passion for Ted Nugent. <laughs> yeah, we don't have time to talk about the Nuge. But it's, a, it's a funny little clip. So, it is a funny little clip. Yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll all say goodbye. We're yeah. back in a couple of weeks talking with Devon Powers about her book she wrote a number of years ago called "Writing the Record," which is subtitled. The Village Voice and the Birth of Rock Criticism. Another birth of rock criticism. But we'll yes. find out what she has to say about it. So anyway, well, listen, thanks again for joining us, Joe. And goodbye, Thank everybody. Thanks for the invite. Bye. Bye.
I met him last year. I gave him the whole story. You raised me, man. It was you, you know, when, when you would come to town and play in D.C., me and my friends, we all went, man. We worshipped you. You were great. And you never drank, never smoked, never did drugs. That was a total inspiration to all of us, man. He's like, uh-huh. And what did you say your name was? Like, Rollins, Henry Rollins, Rollins Band. I send you every CD I do. Uh-huh. Good luck to you. And he gave me one of his catalogs like I order a bow. I was like, hey. <laughs> He's like, gotta go. Uh, good luck with your, your band. You have a band, right? Yes. That was Henry Rollins in conversation with Andy Gill in 1994, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to a special guest, Joe Carducci. Find his blog at newvulgate.blogspot.com and his books, including Rock and the Pop Narcotic, in all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.